you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. This is episode number 226. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 27,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Oklahoma gets cracking on tracking. Virginia says puff puff pass on sales this year. Does Curaleaf have ties to Russia? Driving while baked. Some social equity wins. Biden's Supreme Court nominee and her stand on cannabis. And in celebration of Women's History Month, let's talk about Ladybuds, the movie. Also, many other Frosty Nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hand if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, my headline this morning comes out of Oklahoma, where there's an agreement that allows the relight of the seed-to-sale system, and boy, does it taste burnt. Oklahoma cannabis business now under deadline for seed-to-sale tracking program, as reported from KFOR.com, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma has been under a battle to keep the metric system out of the state. But now under a new rule, it's going to have less than 90 days to get into compliance with the seed-to-sell tracking system. Oklahoma medical marijuana seed-to-sell system can proceed after the injunction has been lifted. This injunction has been the single biggest roadblock for Oklahoma's OMMA enforcing the laws, says Kelsey Pegans with the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority. Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority now free from restraining order blocking the implementation of a seed-to-sell program to track the chain of custody 
fertility of the plant. So from when we see the seed to when we see the sale, we're going to be able to actually understand what's going on in Oklahoma mildly. There's a temporary restraining order issued against Oklahoma State Department for the Health and Medical Marijuana Association in class action lawsuit in April of last year. Viridian Legal Services had obtained the agreed temporary restraining order as a part of a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of over 10,000 licensed marijuana business holders in the state. And now the reality that there was 10,000 of them is even crazier. <laughs> we believe that they would, they would cause essentially a ca catastrophe if the state, if the program was rolled out with any regulations, says Don Durbin, the attorney with uh, Viridian Law. Now, I think it's really interesting because they put this uh, moratorium on last year because people were basically afraid that they were going to get put out of business by going through with the tracking system that they knew was going to come. And I feel even more bad for the companies that actually went ahead and did the good business thing, which was get prepared for what's coming. People that were 24 hours, 48 hours in advance, uh, the deadline of last year prior to the moratorium being put in, uh, that still had none of their tracking uh tags assigned to anything and none of the metric system even remotely operational. And so the idea that this wasn't coming, you know, is insane. If anybody thought that they were going to be able to keep it down forever, absolutely not. Um, but in reality, I only saw it as the opportunity for people to push it back long enough to try to get the things that they were doing, the illicit operations from being discovered. And now this is going to come full circle, you know, a little under a year later, where they're actually going to implement metric and they're going to require it. And now it's coming down within the next 90 days. And this is going to be something I do believe that causes a lot of people problems because people just got comfortable. Um, the attorney who filed the suit said that the only issue not resolved was whether or not the state will reimburse the businesses for the costs associated with the program. They say that it'll be an issue until they, con that they continue to work on, which I think that's probably asking for a bit much. Um, but with that said, I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Thanks for sharing that article, Nicole. Um, I do think it's really funny that it's coming full circle and uh, about a year later. But at the end of the article, I think the last thing it says is... Uh, the only issue not resolved was whether the state will reimburse businesses for costs associated with the program. I know that was part of the initial lawsuit, whether it was the licensee's obligation to pay or it was the state's obligation to pay. And the answer to that question is a multi-million dollar question. And I think the state was the state might have resisted trying to move forward implementation because they know they're going to be left holding the bag. But that little issue recently where there were a bunch of feds in Oklahoma um, shutting down certain operations, there might be some pressure on them to clean up their state's act or more enforcement is coming. And they don't want the money that they're earning off of their state legal cannabis businesses to stop. So they were put in a vice and they have to do something, even though it looks like they're going to end up holding the bag on this payment issue. There is definitely going to be somebody left holding the bag. Uh, everyone in Oklahoma has until May 27th to be in full compliance with metric and seed to sell tracking. Secure the bag. Plot twist. You are the bag. So I guess, so I guess Oklahoma is not okay? Never been. I wonder what percentage of businesses are going to go under because of this. 72%. <laughs> 
That's an interesting number. I think most businesses are going to do the same thing that they do in every in every uh, metric rollout state and just struggle bus and fail through it and do a really terrible job for like the first year and have like just massive amounts of inventory issues where they're still just pushing the button. And then eventually the state, like the amount of companies that are going to have to be on metric, like it will be impossible for their regulators to observe all of the different anomalies um, for a while because the first thing is the data, right? You have to collect data. The whole purpose of metric is they develop uh, what a standard is in that, you know, and and it takes a while to figure out what standardization looks like because nobody knows how to use the fucking software correctly. So it'll probably be about a year real rollout before anybody starts fully understanding and there'll be about 10% of the companies that are doing it right from the beginning, but that'll usually be because they hired somebody to show them how to do it. It's the fucking domino effect and these states are stupid. They keep on hiring the same companies to do the track and trail, uh, track and trace Systems and they all are shitty. They all are rolled out shittily. Uh, The education around them is shitty. And um, I don't know why a big tech company hasn't just stepped in and just taken over all of this shit like already. Metric keeps getting the contract, I think, because they were the first to market realistically. Um, Biotrack. I thought Biotrack. Biotrack's trash. No, Biotrack's trash, and its original existence was pharmaceuticals. Um, they're both – I mean, I think they're both awful. Biotrack set itself up to be too many things, though. Biotrack was also a point of sale, and the d- division between the actual point of sale and the required tracking was where things got a little tricky for government contracts because the government contracts, um, they don't want the point of sale as a part of the overall tracking. So Biotrack kind of shot themselves in the foot in a big way for that reason. Interesting. And the state of Florida – just secured Biotrack as their state track and trace system. <laughs> That's where Biotrack originated. It originated for the bulk of its own, right? Yeah, and originated because of the uh, pain management clinic uh, epidemic that was going on in Florida. They were trying to figure out what people were um, essentially, essentially, they were looping pharmaceutical places and getting pharmies from multiple places. And Biotrack's been their track and trace since they've had track and trace. Biotrack was track and trace before trace was tracked. Thank you so much for that headline, Nicole. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. He's also the patriarch of dad jokes on the show. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Susan, Susan, Susan. So my my headline is uh, pretty spicy, and I'm going to uh, not take any sides. Like on this, I have Russian friends in the industry, and then um, I know it's a very touchy topic right now because of what's going on in Ukraine, and I want to respect everybody with family and friends over there. So um, I won't uh, be too humorous on this one, but um, it is what it is. So an inconvenient truth for hustlers, lone wolf solopreneurs, um, and presidential demagogues alike. We've all got people behind the scenes who help us get shit done. Uh, some choose to stay behind the scenes. Others enjoy the spotlight while conducting business in a high-risk environment, maybe even federally illegal, traditional methods for raising capital, pulling construction permits, rubbing elbows with key political figures. Uh, they're not always as accessible as they would be compared to your mainstream entrepreneurial counterparts. Assistance just might come along from a place or person you'd rather not do your due diligence on. 
but it keeps you afloat. It is what it is. According to Green Market Report, during the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine last week, Twitter was pushing hard for a pro-Ukraine response from Cureleaf with many supposed shareholders claiming to have sold their shares due to their dissatisfaction of executive chairman Boris Jordan's response. Here's what he said. Many have asked my position on the unfolding situation. Being of both Ukrainian and Russian descent, I pray for diplomacy and a peaceful resolution that res- uh, that protects the lives of all citizens on both sides of the conflict. I remain hopeful that the proposed talks will come to fruition to allow a diplomatic resolution. Curly stock dropped 6% following his statement. Uh, Friday, the company released an open message on their website telling investors it is not subject to any sanctions against Russia, despite its ties to the country. The statement read, rumors and misinformation are spread during turbulent times. The speculation on social media that the company and its major shareholders and executives will somehow be subject to any U.S. government economic sanctions now or in the future is incorrect. The substantial majority of our shares are owned by the retail investor community and institutional investors. Jordan's Curaleaf founder, uh, executive chairman, largest shareholder, and an American citizen born in New York. He's never been a citizen of any other country, but per the message, he has worked in Europe and Russia for several years and owns businesses in the U.S., Europe, and Russia. He was the chairman and founder of Renaissance Capital, an emerging markets investment bank in 95. He managed. He was managing director of Credit Suisse in Moscow from 92 to 95. And outside of Kiraleaf, he's currently the founder, president, and CEO of private equity firm, the Sputnik Group. He owns 22% of the company's stock. Uh, Andre Block, Kiraleaf's second largest shareholder, is a U.S. citizen who holds a Russian passport. He's also worth about $2, uh, $2 billion. Kiraleaf's detailed description of Block, a retired executive from the consumer packaged goods sector. In 98, Block was the president of Russian oil company Sibneft. Uh, while it's unclear while, when he first invested, Kiraleaf's been a public company since 2018, and the MSO defended him by saying U.S. citizens, whether they hold the p- other passports or not, are, su- are not subject to and cannot be subject to U.S. economic sanctions. Uh, Kiraleaf is... Uh, Kiraleaf's market cap is about $5 billion. Shares are down 26% year-to-date, just two months into this shit, um, including another 7.5% this morning when I was prepping the story. Um, although things may get worse for the MSO giant before they get better, trust they will not be alone when it comes to cannabis companies having to defend their Russian roots. I think industry newcomers and whatever purists out there who are throwing stones in this glass house of an industry are in for a very rude awakening once they find out just how much Russian money has been keeping this industry afloat for I don't know how long. It's very unfortunate folks are losing money over what's going on on the other side of the globe, but it's that's what we call political risk and something you should have accounted for while doing your own background research before investing in an industry that's still federally illegal. Uh, it'll be an interesting road forward. And my guess is the only reason Curaleaf is catching so much public heat right now is because they're the biggest in the game. Heavy as the head that wears the crown. This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad alive in these streets, reporting live for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm interested to hear what everybody else thinks about this one. This was exactly what my comment was about yesterday when we talked about the Cure Leaf lawsuits. And all oh, that. I know. <laughs> so I have a problem with it because I, I don't like guilt by association, right? I mean, just because they're Russian doesn't mean that they're, they support this, that they, by any stretch of the imagination. Agreed. Okay, the Cure Leaf is a, is a big player in my tiny little town, and the whole town is... Uh, all up in arms about boycotting Curaleaf. And 
the Russian Association has long been noted. Um, so it's very interesting the way this is playing out in the streets and in the dispensaries. Jason, I, I remember when uh, you were working with uh, Dana Rohrbacher, you guys kept saying, stop worrying about Russia. We don't need to worry about Russia. We need to be worried about China. Is that still the case, that we should be worried about China? That is still 100% the case. The reality is that there's three global superpowers. There's China, Russia, and the U.S. And the reality is that uh, Russia and the U.S. are more politically aligned in their goals to um, as far as curbing, uh, curbing China as well as defeating Islamic extremism. All right. Well, thank you so much for that uh, very spicy story today, Rico. Um, and up next, we have Lara DeCaro. Lara is a fighter for Love is Love, the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and the founder of the San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project. What do you have for us today, Lara? Oh, thank you, honey. Um, today I have a story coming back to the U.S. about where does Biden's Supreme Court nominee stand on marijuana legalization? Here's what we found. It's by Bruce Barkett, Barkett, I'm sorry, for Leafly. You know, ordinarily I would, I would start off my day-to-day -day saying, happy growl, y'all, but, um, you know, I think it is a bit of a somber Mardi Gras, so I'll move right into the article. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the article points out, is President's, uh, President Biden's nominee to fill Justice Stephen Byer's seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. And the article said she has real-world experience with America's drug laws. So I read on. This article focuses on her legal experience, it's true, but I've also done my own research and put a couple of other links in the spreadsheet for our superfans, so do check out um, some deeper, deeper coverage of this lovely woman. According to this article, a brief survey of Jackson's appearances in media turns up no direct statement regarding legalization of cannabis. But there are plenty of enemy entries sorry, on her resume to indicate that she'd give any legal challenges to prohibition at least a fair hearing. They uh, cover the Washington Post article that is quoted as saying she would be the first justice to have served as a federal public defender, um, pointing out that she had two years in the appellate office of the D.C. PD's office. During her confirmation hearing for a seat on the federal appeals court, Jackson told the Sen Senate Confirmation Committee that, quote, there is a direct line from my defender service to what I do on the bench. And while I find this laudable, as an attorney, I can say that two years is not enough time to really learn any area of law, and I wonder why she left that job so soon. The article goes on to point out that later in her career, she served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and this is huge. This is the commission that was charged with reforming the outrageous racial disparities in our nation's drug laws. Um, and uh, during the, that commission, apparently she argued that the changed sentencing guidelines should apply retroactively to people serving federal sentences for crack cocaine possession. Um, but the results of those reforms, quote-unquote, remains a subject of much consternation and debate in the legal community. And it's not certain that she would see cannabis in the same way because other reports point to her admitted influence um, of an uncle's conviction and sentencing to life for crack cocaine possession, specifically on her views relating to justice. So aside from that uncle, 
Another uncle was apparently a Miami P, uh, police chief. A third uncle was a sex crimes detective. And her younger brother, quote-unquote, worked for the Baltimore PD in undercover drug stings, per the New York Times, whatever that means. But whether she would have any influence over the Supreme Court policy on drug crimes is uh, still up for debate. You may recall last July, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas pointed out that there may not be um, cause for prohibition on interstate use of cultivation of cannabis any longer, and he supported uh, some sort of congruent uh, approach to the federal government's uh, regulation of cannabis. So this could be an interesting appointment, but nothing in the record points to any particular point of view that she may hold. So this is Laura DeCaro reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour, and I hope everyone has a lovely day. Anybody have any thoughts on this? Well, Laura, I was thinking that even if she doesn't really have a stance out there, or who knows, it appears she may have an open mind. And what we really need are four willing justices uh, to at least hear cases. So as long as uh, we have her to at least get cases brought to be heard, I think that's a good first step. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm just going to go out there and say it, man. I'm a huge fan of uh, the next Supreme Court justice uh, and her name being Katanji Brown Jackson. <laughs> That's the blackest motherfucking name for a motherfucking Supreme Court justice of all time. Right. I stand by that statement. If that is an identity politics playing, I mean, is it identity politics when you're black? I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, I vote for Obama because he was black. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm allowed to do that shit. Why? <laughs> because I can never be racist. Thank you, Michelle Alexander. Laura, I have a question for you. What types of cases are you kind of looking out for that the Supreme Court might hear? So the Supreme Court would not ordinarily hear, you know, in drug cases. Um, it might be here. Let me that's <laughs> Thanks. Um, they might they may hear something on uh, federal legalization or uh, even federal and state sentencing regulations and laws, um, but those would be the types of cases that would probably come before the Supreme Court. Thank you. Yeah. If anyone is hoping for a positive outcome to come out of a Supreme Court case, they have a much better chance of playing the lottery and actually winning. Yeah, it's not, legalization is not going to come from this court, from any court, really. But it may be upheld. Challenges to certain um, aspects, even a challenge to a tax, may come before the Supreme Court. So is it really about freeing prisoners who are still being held um, from prior versions of these laws? No. I, 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 think, I think there is a possibility of stuff going through the court. I think it's going to be a better possibility than the Hill getting anything done. Um, I think if they have to look at a case that has to deal with interstate commerce, that deals with insurance or medical claims, uh, kind of like we brought up a, a few weeks ago, I think those kind of cases are what's going to be the issue that's brought to the court. Brandon, Shalina, anything? Uh, I, I mean, I think all sorts of issues could come to the court. I think that even, uh, you know, social equity programs and questions uh, about um, equal competition could even end up coming coming to the court. And what she, what some of her, what that article says, you know, it's, this is someone who's looking to be a good justice and evenly apply the law um, and make sure the law is fairly applied. That 
may not turn out the way we're projecting or anticipating on this stage right now. Right, right, right. I, I, I don't think that this is going to come down to criminal cases at all. I definitely think this is, you know, we're going to be looking at business terms and regulatory context. Interesting. Thank you so much, Laura. She's, she's very young, right? 51? How old was... Uh... Well, you want them to be semi-young because you want them to, you know, hold the seat for more than a few years. So I, I yeah. think 51 isn't terrible. Yeah, how old was... Uh, uh, was uh... Beer can Kavanaugh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. But uh, Amy, what's her name? She's she's young. Oh. Jason Beck, they're your two favorite justices. Do you know who old they yeah, are? Yeah, the super Catholic. They're 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 all in their uh, late fifties, early sixties. <laughs> <laughs> she's the founder of Panoptic Strategies, a staunch supporter of safe banking, and a self-described feisty redhead conservative with Mayflower roots, never too scared to spar with cannabis-loving libs across the aisle. Coming to the stage next, it's our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today, Gretchen? Good afternoon. My headline is coming from Marijuana Moment, uh, but it's just a replay from a story from the Virginia Mercury. Uh, And the headline is Virginia House Committee Kills Bill to Begin Marijuana Sales This Year. A House of Delegates subcommittee Monday voted down legislation that would have allowed recreational marijuana sales to begin this September. The legislation, which had passed the Democratic-controlled Senate last week, died on a party-line vote with Republicans opposing. The delegate Jeff Campbell said, I think this is a bigger issue than we can correct in two weeks' time. He's a Republican. Uh, Democrats on the panel urged their GOP colleagues to reconsider. The longer we wait to have a regulated market, the harder it will be to compete with the illicit market. That's from Delegate Don Adams, a Democrat from Richmond. The General Assembly voted last year to allow people to possess and grow marijuana, but lawmakers have so far been unable to agree on legalized recreational sales. Democrats had set an initial goal of opening sales in 2024, uh, but decided over the summer that was too long to wait, citing concerns that people were only flouting the state ban on sales. Currently, the only legal way to obtain marijuana in Virginia is to grow it, get it as a gift, or buy it from a medical dispensary with a prescription. The politics became more complex after Democrats lost their majority in the House of Delegates in the November elections, leaving Republicans who opposed legalization to broker a final deal. Coming into the legislative session, re- Republicans said they would address the issue, framing it as a mess Democrats had left them to clean up. But as the session progressed, it became clear the House GOP caucus was unable to reach an internal consensus on the issue. The chamber never docketed GOP bills that would have advanced legalization alongside Republican priorities like dedicating new tax revenue to school construction. With Monday's vote, Republicans promised to revisit the issue next year, making sometime to mid to late 2023 the earliest retail sales could begin. Virginia Democrats made a big a great big mess when they legalized marijuana without putting any regulatory or retail structure in place, said House Speaker Todd Gilbert in a tweet. We are left having to clean up their mess and we will not make it worse by rushing to fix it. House Republicans did advance legislation proposed by Delegate Emmett Hanger, Republican from Augusta, which would regulate sales of Delta 8 THC products, which gives users a similar high as traditional marijuana, but whose producers argue is technically legal under state and federal law. The products have sprung up in specialty shops, gas station, and health markets. Hangers Bill would unambiguously bar sales until the recreational marijuana market opens. Um, 
personally, I think it's a good thing that they're waiting. Um, and that's not because I'm just a Republican. Uh, we have seen in the past through every uh, market that opens up recreational sales that it takes a good two years to get these things going. And frankly, Virginia did not have the strongest medical market to begin with to grandfather things in. So I see no problem in waiting to actually 2024 to get things going. And if they're going at the pace that they think they will, they'll be up and running uh, long before that in 2023. Uh, so I think there's no rush to get uh, retail sales going in Virginia for some piss poor plan just because they want to get it done sooner. This is Gretchen for State of Kansas News Hour. Gretchen, did you say that there's no Russians in Virginia? Jesus Christ, Jason Beck. Oh, my God. Um, I just want to make a comment that has nothing to do with the article exactly except for the photograph. That is from a photograph, a photo shoot from Sweetleaf, Portland, uh, that on our opening day, it's one of the most circulated photographs that gets used by major publications. I think it's really interesting. But if you look at the photo, you can see the bottom of his shirt. It says Sweetleaf. Why do you think it's used so often? Because is it they got because sold it's... to Shutterstock, the specific set of photos. The photographer that did that article um, sold his whole photo uh, reel to Shutterstock, and it's uh, very well, widely circulated, and it's a pretty decent photo, um, but it's on Shutterstock. It really is a decent photo. Usually they're so lame. Rico, let me you're a Virginian. How do you feel about uh, sales being held off? Um. <clears throat> I think it's good for the people at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, just eh, trappers going to trap regardless. It's going to happen. Um, yeah, the people at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, it's going to give them more of a chance and less of a head start for the larger companies uh, to take control of the market. So, I mean, I, I try not to dig too deep into uh, Virginia politics um, and, and get my emotions all into this shit <laughs> because I have too many people that are still behind bars out there. Too many people have been uh, locked up and too many people trying to escape the, the shit that we grew up in. Um, but, you know, it's under Republican control right now. And growing up in a state like that under Republican control, you just know, like, don't listen to a damn thing that they say. And just just be aware of the, the, the big picture and control the controllable. Uh, that's it. All right. Well, we've reached the half hour mark, so I'm going to do a quick relight of the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. So I'm going to keep smoking the news. I'm on a mission to find good news out there because we all need that. Today's headline comes from MJ Biz Daily, and it is small-scale cannabis social equity success stories emerge amid stumbles among big programs by Jeff Smith. So the MCBA, with the help of ArcView Group, Parallel and Weed Maps conducted a sweeping and critical study of equity programs across the U.S. that showed state programs have yet to fulfill the promise of boosting cannabis industry participation among minorities 
and those affected by the war on drugs. I'm going to pronounce this guy's name wrong. Probably Jesse Horton, founder and CEO of the Portland, Oregon-based premium cannabis producer Loud and co-founder of MCBA, cited similar successful examples of local cannabis entrepreneurs. But in general, he he stressed, it's important to go beyond the negative headlines to celebrate the people who did get in, while also recognizing that a sea change has occurred. Quote, when I first got started in the industry, social equity wasn't even a term being used. There was no discussion of it on the table, Horton said. Today, he noted social equity, diversity, and inclusion are at least an essential part of any legalization discussion. Quote, without a doubt, it's something we need to recognize and understand the importance of and realize it has come a long way, unquote. Here are some role models that we can look to. Alfonso Tucky Blunt, Juniors, Blunts, and more in Oakland, the California City's first equity cannabis store. We can look for, look to Amber Center, CEO of Maker House, an Oakland-infused cannabis processor and distributor and executive director of Supernova Women in Oakland. Kika Keith, who took her mother's alpha alpha chlorophyll drink recipe and developed a successful beverage company called Gorilla Life and now is part of Gorilla RX, an equity cannabis retailer in Los Angeles. The New Leaf Project, they work in partnership with the city of Portland to provide minority entrepreneurs with financial resources and access to mentors and other resources. Grants, which typically range from $15,000 to $60,000 and zero interest loans that have boosted cannabis retailers, craft producers, and delivery services. The New Leaf Project to date has issued more than $1 million to 32 businesses, according to their website. There are more, and I encourage all of you to read the full article. Obviously, the industry has a long way to go, but let's celebrate that we're at least on the right road. I'm not sure if we're really on the right road if those are all the success stories, Susan. That's not all the success success stories. That's a few of them, Jason. But yes, we, ha- we definitely need to do a lot more. Jason, do you enjoy taking uh, long trips down the old town road? Old town road, as long as it's a dirt road. Dirt road Democrat. Dirt roads are for Democrats. That's right, Laura, because they have terrible infrastructure bills. <laughs> 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 When's the last time a Republican president even uh, did anything during Infrastructure Week, Jason? Trump. Trump did tons of stuff, Rico. What? Wait, wait, wait. Who, who, who just passed the? He got in the driver's seat of a dump truck and pulled the horn. That's doing something. So confused. Uh, let's let's hear from Mary Clifton. She's up from the audience. Mary, oh, please save us. <laughs> I was thinking just about how really, truly wonderful it is, how far cannabis has come. I mean, from when I was in high school trying to manage anxiety and not really understanding at all why or how, but, you know, getting benefit from cannabis, picking out the seeds and the stems and, you know, at the end of the road in northern Michigan trying to get something, anything. And now, you know, I can do anything I want with patients. And I mean, not anything I want, but I can, I can provide so many wonderful alternatives for people. We really have come a long, long way. I mean, from a medical point of view, there's a lot to clean up, but there's a lot to celebrate. Yeah. We've, we've got enough doom and gloom. Let's, uh, let's spotlight, let's highlight the, the good things. 
Oh yeah, it's so great that I can ask somebody what they like and they can give me their their strain and we can take it from there and improve it. It's just it's a blast. It's a it's a whole new world. It'll be even cooler when strains are a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to find across the country. Uh, yeah. The originality yeah. of it all. Oh my God, is dizzying. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Susan, and the spotlight on some really amazing people. Um, and up next, we have Maggie Wilson. Maggie's the first black female cannabis sommelier, best-selling author of the Metaphysical Cannabis Oracle deck, debuting in the Hash Museum in Amsterdam and Spain this summer, and the CMO of Fruits Labs. What do you have for us today, Maggie? Good morning, Nicole. Thank you so much for the intro. Today, my story comes out of RockyMountainOutlook.com. It says, Calgary driver stopped in central Alberta and charged with hauling hundreds of cannabis plants. This story is written by Simon Ducatel, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to say some names wrong. So a Calgary man was charged under the Cannabis Act after local authorities found hundreds of plants in his car during a traffic stop. If you're not familiar, the Cannabis Act is designed to protect the health and safety of Canadians, to keep cannabis out of the hands of youth, and to keep profits out of the hands of criminals and organized crime. The Enisfail RCMP department reported on Monday, February 28th, that a member of its detachment's integrated traffic unit pulled over a male motorist who, according to police, was speeding on February 3rd. The officer, based on numerous interactions, entered into a drug trafficking investigation and the driver was arrested, is what the report says. As the officer proceeded to conduct the search, he'd found 440 cannabis plants, which they're totaling the worth as approximately $440,000, were discovered alongside other drugs and paraphernalia, which are not named, is what the police said. The 56-year-old Calgary man, who was also not named, was charged under the Cannabis Act as well as the Traffic Safety Act for distribution of budding or flowering plants uh, um, with more, uh, more than four plants, which is the legal limit uh, to have at home, uh, as well as exceeding the speed limit on the highway. So if he wasn't speeding, he may have not been caught. He's scheduled to appear on March 7th in the Provincial Court, and the Integrated Traffic Unit reminds the public and e- uh, that even though cannabis is legal and cannabis products are available in Canada, that nevertheless, provincial, territorial, and federal regulations must be followed when buying, transporting, or consuming cannabis. Alongside the unit's mandates <clears throat> is to intercept contraband being transported on the Alberta highways. So... It looks like if you're going to transport your weed, you should definitely just be a lot smarter about it in Canada and not go above the speed limit. This is Maggie reporting for the State of Cannabis. Maggie, did you hear the news um, that the L.A. police commissioner is considering disciplining officers who don't explain pretext for traffic stops? I was so happy to hear that. It's uh, because I've been the victim of that. Oh, you you forgot to signal. No, no, no. Wait, it was uh, you were speeding. Uh, whatever. We just we're pulling you over because we want to take a tracking device out of your car. Yeah, that's unfortunate. We were listening to something yesterday about how that the police actually have a lot of uh, leeway whenever it comes to pulling you over and just basically doing whatever they want for whatever reason they want. Now they have a lot of leeway. Period. <laughs> pulling you yeah. over, whether it's putting a fucking knee in the back of your neck, like whatever the fuck it is, <laughs> there's a lot of leeway for cops in this country. You'd period. think Canadian cops would be a little bit nicer, though, eh? 
No, they're because they're Mounties. Are all Canadian cops Mounties? That's what they were described as in the in this article in the press release. They did call them uh, local Mounties. Yes, they are all known as Mounties. Do they all? I do have a question. Horses. Our dog's gonna bark. Are four hundred and forty cannabis plants worth four hundred and forty thousand dollars? If they're the right genetics, they are, Maggie. <laughs> That's definitely in. Well, would. And when they said tiny plants, I actually was thinking potentially tissue culture. Um, that's probably the most common right now in the way of, of transport, um, that it would be, you know, platelets or, or just very beginning but, starts of plants. But, Nicole, if it, was, exactly. if it was tissue culture, they wouldn't be able to call it a plant because they, in order for them to call it a plant, it has to show roots. So yeah. maybe he – yeah, maybe that's what it is because how can you have 440 Plants in one vehicle. That's anyway. that's totally possible. Poss- you have uh, you have four or five trays with you know what I'm saying four or five hundred clones. Right, that's what that I mean. Not actual full plants. Like well, small. A plant, well, like I said, a plant once it has roots is defined as a plant regardless of the height. Right. How many roots, Jason? Just like a little teeny tip of a as root. As long so? as they can see roots. If it's if it's popping out the cube, there's roots. So the nodes, actually, I've, I've seen plants being considered plants if they have um, a certain uh, size of the leaf. And you can actually get the leaf at that size without the full root structure um, in a tissue culture. What is most favorite? I'd like to know what the other drugs and paraphernalia were, though, because that would be valuable information. Because if he was also transporting cocaine or heroin or what the fuck ever, that should absolutely have something to do with what he's doing. Well, didn't Canada have a crack pipe giveaway too? <laughs> my my lawyer used to always tell me, uh, only break one law when you're breaking the law. So this guy didn't get that lesson off. I, I had a cop tell me that too. I have to say, this logo is badass. I love it. How the hell was he supposed to stay awake? Because you're supposed to be woke, Rico. Not taking that bait. Not taking it. <laughs> Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Y'all know what? I'm not sure even the best weed in the world gets our next correspondent going as much as Donald Trump teasing another run in 2024 to make America great again. Again. He's the industry's longest continuously running retailer and West Hollywood's very own Kaiser Brose. He's also known in Detroit as White Gucci. Up next, the Green Street hooligan himself, Mr. Jason Beck. <laughs> he got some fucking news for us. Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today, my story comes out of Minnesota, where Minnesota medical cannabis program now includes smokable weed. That's right, Minnesotians. Minnesotans enrolled in the state's medical marijuana program can now buy smokable cannabis as of today. Why this matters? The change approved by lawmakers last year was a significant expansion of Minnesota's medical marijuana law, which is fairly restrictive compared to other states. How it works, you ask? Well, dispensaries can now sell dried flour and pre-rolls to patients ages 21 and older. Patients can buy a 90-day supply after a consultation with a dispensary pharmacist. Um, Prior to this month, medical cannabis was only offered in pill, liquid, and oil forms, as well as tinctures and topicals, 
powders and lozenges. What kind of fucking powders are they making for weed? I'm wondering. Marijuana remains illegal for for adult use in this state, and that's unlikely to change during the current legislative ex, late legislative session. And Minnesota Department of Health has said it anticipates a surge in applications to the program, which is only open to people with a qualified medical condition, such as certain cancers, Crohn's disease, or an end stage terminal illness. And everyone wants to know what's next, what's happening next in Minnesota. Well, they will be uh, including some edibles such as gummies um, are slated to be added to the program come around in August. So Minnesotians, congratulations. You can now buy weed for real. So good luck and come by the end of summer. You're going to be able to buy gummies, too. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Do they have a uh, smokable Delta Eight out there as well? Yeah, but that's at gas stations, Rico. It's actually like really, really positive news for the Minnesota market. I'm happy for them, and I hope they get some quality shit out there too, man. Big ups to Minnesota. Progress is good. Well, I do know they do have some decent weed in Michigan, so they're not too far from being able to obtain good weed, even if they can't get it in Michigan, or excuse me, in Minnesota, in Minnesota. Well. Thank you so much for that headline. If uh, nobody else has any comments, we'll go ahead and jump to our next correspondent, Menika Mahajan. Menika is a pot-smoking PhD, political economist, and the founder of Mahajan Consulting. What do you have for us today, Menika? Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for the introduction. Today, I'm bringing you some data and a review of the state of the states from Americans for Safe Access. They produce a State of the States report each year and have been doing so since 2014. And the report evaluates medical cannabis programs across the U.S. So it's been 25 years since the first medical cannabis laws came into effect in California. And the State of the State report shows that even after 25 years, states are falling short on providing safe, legal, and affordable access to all patients. There are many barriers that patients still face to access, some of those including health insurance coverage, product availability, proximity to retail location, and more. So I'm going to talk about the five trends that ASA points to in this State of the State reports, which you can access at safeaccess.org. And the first one, growth is a general trend. So although that there, there has been an increase in adult use laws throughout the United States, uh, many individuals are choosing to register as medical cannabis patients for improved access to safe cannabis and legal pr- protections. Only four states had a patient population that, strunk, that shrunk since last year, and those four states were Alaska, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Oregon. Every other program saw an expanding patient population. The most notable growth happened in the District of Columbia and Florida, which, both of which saw over 70% growth over the 2020 report's findings. There are now over 5.1 million legal medical cannabis patients across the country and territories, and at least 13 states that have over 100,000 registered patients. ASA estimates that there are now over 7,000 legal medical cannabis retailers across the entire United States, which is an increase of some 1,400 retailers uh, from previous reporting, and most of the new retailers are in Oklahoma, which now holds one-third of the country's legally operating medical cannabis retailers. Number two, small changes can make a big difference. So ASA points to a bunch of changes that were made without legislative approval, showing that small changes deeply impacting patient access can be made quickly. 
Some of those include telehealth, curbside pickup, and delivery. Those were instituted during the COVID, uh, the beginning of COVID in many states. And eight states have chosen to make at least one COVID emergency measure permanent, while the majority have extended their temporary measures further. Only two states so far, Florida and Colorado, have allowed their COVID measures to expire fully. Number three, the cost of medicine remains a major burden for patients. 70% of respondents said that the cost of medicine was either very prohibitive or entirely prohibitive compared to 6% who responded that medicine was fairly affordable or affordable. California got a score of 40 out of 100 on this particular metric, and a majority of patients in California agreed that adult use has had a negative impact on patients. Illinois, meanwhile, got the highest score in this category at 65 of 100 points, which is a D, uh, and that was the best possible, the best score out of all of the states and territories. Number four, no state is perfect, and there are always improvements to be made. None of the state laws adopted thus far can be considered ideal from a patient's standpoint. Maine was the highest grade, graded state, which earned 76.14 of possible points. Affordability and consumer protection and product safety were, um, were, uh, were it scored at 60% and 61.5%. The average score nationwide on these two metrics was 41.44%. And finally, uh, ASA points to the the need for federal changes in order to allow programs to reach their full potential, saying that by having one national coordinating entity responsible for all cannabis policy at the federal level, states can begin making substantial improvements for patients. And researchers, physicians, government officials, and the public can benefit from a more intentional approach to medical cannabis policy. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. You know, Menica, maybe California got a bad score, but wasn't California the first state in during the COVID lockdowns to say that medical cannabis was an essential service? The metrics don't um, don't measure kind of the first to do something, um, as far as I can tell from looking at the report itself. It's really about. Uh, you know, they measure and score a variety of things, and those are taken at you know, static points. And so that is a, a great point, though, that California did um, did take pretty rapid ac- action. I love data. Me too, Rico. Coming straight out. <laughs> data is the absolutely best. All right, so uh, coming straight out of the longest of all beaches, he is the CEO of Fruit Slabs, a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, and has a beard, gra- beard game. Um, what has been described by many as way strong. Up next is Brandon Dorsky. Thanks Thanks for having me today. Uh, My headline comes from Wired Magazine, and it's Toke Detector. There's no scientific way to tell if someone is driving while stoned. That's a problem for law enforcement and drivers. One company is determined to fix that. But can weed sobriety tests really work? as written by Amanda Chicago Lewis. If you subscribe to Apple News, this would be in your Apple News feed. It's a 37-minute listen. I'm going to describe it for you, but the article was worth it. It first explores the experience of Doug Frazier, a white male Washington cannabis shop employee who, unfortunately, is amidst the legal battle over a DUI that resulted from failing a field sobriety test the day after he had taken a dab about 20 hours after, and he was pulled over for driving 81 miles per hour. 
His blood tested at 9 nanograms THC per milliliter. And under Washington law, it is illegal to drive with 5 nanograms or more of THC in your blood. He ended up with a speeding ticket, 15 days of house arrest, 3 years of probation, and about $4,000 in fines. Fraser's lawyers argued his case before Washington State Supreme Court on January 18th, and a ruling is expected sometime this summer. His lawyers will certainly argue that the blood toxicology standard of 5 nanograms is a flawed threshold, and it is not accurate or workable. The article posits that cops, prosecutors, toxicologists, justice advocates, and stoners actually can all agree on that fact. But unfortunately, lawmakers have not, and therein lies the problem for some company to solve. The article does say, quote, driving high is not as dangerous as driving drunk and acknowledges measuring cannabis intoxication is statistically fraught. Some statistics that are quoted include a Washington study that found in 2020 the percentage of people who tested positive for THC in fatal crashes had doubled. But the article did not reference the baseline year it was compared to and also noted that the total number of traffic fatalities declined in the state of Washington that year, which really just reflects that more people consumed cannabis once it was legal. A third of all stone driving arrests in Colorado rely on only the opinion of a police officer. Like Washington, some states have implemented a 5 nanogram per milliliter threshold as an adopted standard, which unfortunately ignores the reality that everyone's cannabis pharmacokinetics are different. One company that appreciates that pharmacokinetic difference in reality uh, is driving some innovation to address cannabis-impaired driving. The second half of the article spends a lot of time focusing on that company, Cognivue, that existed in the class of medical devices called cognitive assessment aids. And Cognivue's products had been adapted over time and include tests on how people respond to various stimuli, including visual stimuli. Initially designed to be used to identify cognitive impairment in our aging population, the company realized the tool may be useful in assessing whether or not someone is high. Justice activists and statistics would also argue that roadside impairment tests are racially and physically biased, and an objective measurement device would be better than police. I have to imagine, based on statistics, any person of color would rather be subject to the judgment of a colorblind machine than the fate of a 5-0's assessment. The article acknowledged some other attempts at revised impairment tests, but both contain physical tests requiring standing on one leg that a physically challenged individual would have a hard time completing successfully. So the article went on to talk a lot about Cognivue and what they've done to advance their goals of perhaps being the first roadside cannabis impairment test. And that included a field study of habitual stoners in Colorado that was Uh, carried out in June of 2021 and coordinated by a gentleman named Frank Conrad. Conrad, quote, mistrusts any government science based on the Mississippi-grown swag and, quote, believes too many people are being arrested for stone driving. The self-selected cohort of Colorado and habitual users got $150 and a free vape pen to participate in testing, quote, cognitive performance before and after THC inhalation. I'll spare you all the details of the test, but participants brought their own weed and took repeated blood finger prick samples to monitor their blood concentration of THC. Ted drug recognition expert cops also participated to evaluate the drivers. Subjects were tested before, after, and then hours after consumption. Many participants believed they were no longer high when their blood test would say otherwise, and many participants acknowledged that they felt like they drove safer when they were high. 
Research does show the experienced cannabis users often overcompensated for their perceived impairment, and the results of the study were quite interesting. According to the blood test, 74% of the stoners were stoned on arrival, but cognitive view tests said only 47% were impaired, and the drug recognition expert cops said only 21% were impaired. But an hour after vaping, when many claimed to feel sober, Cognivu found about half of them were no longer impaired. The blood test found 84% were still impaired, and the cops found 68% were still impaired. Truly an interesting read or listen, and for what it's worth, Cognivu is apparently in discussion with Colorado Department of Transportation to help the state assist police in determining stone driving. The speed of bureaucratic change is slow, but it sounds like this Cognivue test is making its case to be a more reasonable and less biased alternative to field sobriety and or blood tests. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. I love it. Stoned on arrival, S-O-A. We've got Joanna Cedar up from the audience. Joanna, did you want to weigh in on Brandon's headline? I did. Thank you, Susan. I just want to say presence does not equal impairment. It never will. I've been smoking pot longer than I've been driving. And so that means, according to some of these standards, I've been in, I have been under the influence every single time I've ever been behind the wheel of a car. So um, not my problem. They have to figure out a, bit, a better way of dealing with it. And, and don't bother me. Thanks. The fact that they would use it. The fact that they would use Colorado as a basis point to do this study is just ridiculous when everyone knows that Colorado weed is fucking trash. Truth. And altitude has an impact on your, your blood, Well, right? yeah, because so, you're so fucking high already, Brandon. So you're saying Coloradans are high before they even smoke weed? They are. That's why, that's why they have booth weed, because they can't tell the difference between the air and the smoke. <laughs> yeah, high and high with no <laughs> supply. there, Jason. <laughs> Oh, my God. Are there any attorneys that specialize in uh, cannabis DUIs? Those are, all, those are all the drunk driving attorneys. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you can find uh, those yeah. attorneys on law. billboards, Susan. Sweet James? Sweet James. Oh, my God. <laughs> Does anybody know anybody who's hired Sweet James? All right. Well, we've reached the hour mark. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears. When there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Bye-bye.